1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 11. It's our text for today. Hear the word of the Lord. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Please join me for that. The, the end, end of all things, things is at hand, therefore. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Please join me as we read that last sentence. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Our passage today reveals two great truths that govern the life of the Christian. First of all, Christ's suffering calls us to a radical break with sin. And secondly, Christ's coming calls us to a radical commitment to the will of God. Well, first let's consider Christ's suffering calls us to a radical break with sin. 1 Peter 4.1 begins, Therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. The second word there is therefore. Now the word therefore is extremely important in the scriptures. Whenever we see it, we have to ask, what happened beforehand that requires this result? What was, in, what was it in the scriptures that were being said that requires a necessary response from us. The text says here that Christ suffered in the flesh. This is a reference back to the previous passage. Verse 18 of the previous chapter says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Well, that text there that I just read encompasses the heart of our redemption. This is the locomotive, the powerful locomotive engine that drives all the cars in the train of salvation. At the heart of our redemption is the man on the cross. He was the sacrifice for our sins. His shed blood did what millions of animals which had been slaughtered on the altars in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem could never do. His death, his poured out blood, erased and took away permanently the sins of his people. For a man or woman washed in Jesus' blood, not a spot of sin remains. Well, since Christ did that for his people, how are we to respond? Verse 1 continues, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. We're told to arm ourselves, that is, put on our battle gear and get ready for spiritual warfare. But he tells us the particular way we are to arm ourselves. It's not with guns and knives and cannons. But we're to arm ourselves in our way of thinking. We're to have a similar mindset to our Lord Jesus. The text goes on and says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This is a little difficult to understand what Peter's getting at here, but this is the interpretation that I want to present to you. I believe this is really a reference to our union with Jesus Christ as Christians. When we've come by faith to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we enter into a spiritual union with Him. When He died on the cross, we... We died. Our sinful nature died. When he rose from the dead, we were united to him in his resurrection. So as a Christian, we live in the power of Christ's resurrection. We see this truth repeated in Romans 6, like in verse 11. Paul says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So it's by Christ suffering in the flesh and that our union with him that we live a new kind of life that we've never known before. Christ's death and resurrection broke the reign, the dominion of sin over our lives. The flesh here refers to our sinful nature. Its power over us was broken by Christ's redemptive work. The, the result is that we have been set free, as verse 2 says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, that is in the body, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Paul has the same idea, again in Romans 6, verse 12. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God. The members of your body to God as instruments for righteousness. So what are we talking about here today? Here's the great fact that Christ's suffering for us calls us to a radical break with sin. He goes on in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter is telling these people here, you had your fill of living ungodly lives like the pagan Gentiles. It's time to put that away. What's being emphasized here is the lust for sinful pleasures, <clears throat> sexual sins, immersion into alcohol, and worship in pagan temples. Often pagan worship included sexual acts like the free offer of temple prostitutes. This is why it was a temptation to Israel to worship foreign gods. They often fell into that trap. They forsook the worship of the true God for sexual pleasure. Sex became their idol. Not the true and living God. The God of holiness and purity and righteousness. Notice the text says here that the sinful practices the Gentiles were doing is, quote, they want to do that. That was the goal of their lives. Their lives centered around these wicked behaviors. They gloried in their sin. But not so, you Christians. Christ has broken sin's power over you. He has set you free. Peter is saying that the old chapter of your life is closed. A new day has dawned. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So don't go back to the darkness. Cast it aside. Don't go back and wallow in the pig pen. Paul says also again in, in Romans 6 verse 19, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Now, this type of sinful lifestyle that Peter is talking about that these people have been involved in is not at all different from the common lifestyles that we see around us today. This theme of a new lifestyle for Christians is one of the major themes in Peter's first letter. For example, in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The Almighty God is set apart from sinful men. Set apart from sin. You to be like him. 
set apart from sin, following your God. The new Christian lifestyle is marked by holiness, separation unto God for His purpose, for His glory, denying the sinful passions of the flesh, and dedicated to a life that pleases God, following the righteous example of our Lord Jesus Christ, and seeking to live according to the pattern, the standard set forth in the Word of God. We must read the Word of God. As we read the Word of God, we are instructed in how we are thinking or acting in wrong ways and how we need to think and act in the right ways. We've got to read the Word of God. We've got to study it. And then he goes on here and says, in verse 4, with, with respect to this, they are surprised people of the world, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Debauchery means total immersion into all kinds of wickedness and sin. They're surprised when you don't join them. You quit joining in with them. Peter said earlier in this letter, chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter knew his people, he knew this was a problem, that when they became Christians, they suffered mocking and so forth from their former associates. Well, when we don't continue to participate with the people in our surrounding culture and their sinful behavior, behavior we seem strange to them, hmm. like some kind of alien beings from another planet. Oh, yeah. So, they make fun of Christians. They speak evil of them. They harass them. Now, here's what Professor Alan Stibbs says about this. Henceforth, we must renounce these old ways and live differently and admittedly if we do our former companions and such evil doings are bound to be surprised that we no longer share in their profligate excesses extreme excesses in the sin and they be they may be expected to give expression to their displeasure by reviling us <laughs> But, that's not the end of the story. It goes on in verse 5. But they, the ones who are making fun of the Christians, are persecuting them, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Amen. The tables will be turned on them. God himself will call them to account for their behavior. That which they gloried in will turn out to be fodder, fuel, for the judgment fires of God against them. They'll have to answer personally to God himself. It says they have to give an account to him, not to the angels, not to some other representative, but to God, the almighty, eternal God himself. Can you imagine what it would be like to stand before the holy, almighty, righteous God of the universe and you are a corrupt sinner who cares nothing for God. Nothing will be hidden from him. 
He knows everything. He knows every sinful thought, every sinful motivation, every sinful attitude, word, and act that wicked humanity has ever done. It'll all be laid open before God's all-seeing eyes. God's fiery eyes of omniscience and omnipotence will infallibly analyze each life and render judgment for every infraction of thought, word, and action. As the book of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But there is a Savior to rescue us from the judgment. Hebrews 9, 27 says, For just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Be assured, as sure as people die, that there's a judgment coming. As sure as the sun comes up tomorrow, there will be a judgment on the living and the dead. Death is no escape from the judgment of God. The only escape from the judgment of God is to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is well able to save his people from the judgment to come. He has been judged in place of his people. He bore the wrath of God against their sins so they would not have to bear it themselves. I hope all of you here today have fled from the wrath to come by fleeing to and clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you need to come to him in sincere and humble faith. He'll take you to himself and hide you from the wrath to come. This is something we must do. Eternity is a long time. Judgment is real. We must flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we must live our lives as Christian people. Here's the second major idea in this passage, that Christ coming, the end of all things, Christ coming calls us to a radical commitment to the will of God. Verse 6 says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Now this is a difficult passage to understand and interpret. But this is what I think it's likely saying here. There are some believers who have already died. But when they were alive, the gospel was preached to them, and they believed it and were saved. And even though they have died... They're alive in their spirits somewhere, someplace, in the presence of Christ, similar to the way God is a spirit. Now, verse 7 says, the end of all things is at hand. This is a radical statement by Peter. The end of all things is at hand. He's saying, the end of the world is coming. The present age is ending. The curtain on history is about to close. 
human existence on this earth in its present form is ending. Time as we know it is ending. Eternity is coming. This is a radical statement. How does Peter know this? It's because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to write these things. This is another common theme in Peter's writings, his two letters. He's referring, the end of all things is the second coming of Christ and the end of the present age. He emphasized this earlier in the letter in chapter 1, verse 13. He said, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, we experience grace now, but we're really going to experience an overflow, abundant, an immersion of grace when Jesus returns. It's a great day coming. But the end of all things is at hand. Because of this, action is required on our part. Response is required from us. Christ coming calls us to a radical commitment to the will of God. Look again at verse 2. It says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Not living for ourselves, our own sinful pleasures, but living for the Almighty God to do His will. Well, how, how can we live the will of, will of God? What do we need to do to please God to live according to His will? Well, He goes on here and gives us some specific ways that we can live for the will of God. He says in verse 7, Therefore be self-controlled. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now this word self-controlled <coughs> is the same word that's used in Mark 5.15. You remember when the Gadarean demoniac was running around the tombs, tearing off his clothes, tearing off the chains. People tried to chain him. He was completely crazy, out of his head. Jesus came to him, healed him, cast 5,000 demons out of him. And it says in verse 15 of Mark 5, he was sitting clothed and in his right mind. Same word here. Be self-controlled. This man was healed. He was in control of himself after many years of torment. We're to live self-controlled lives. Our minds controlled according to the word and will of God. A characteristic of pagan Gentiles in Peter's day and in our day today is they lack self-control. Lack self-control of their bodily appetites for food, drink, sex, and so forth. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. So self-control of our bodily appetites is just as important as love and faithfulness and so forth. 
We should control our appetites, not let them control us. So Christ's coming calls us for a radical commitment to the will of God by exercising self-control in our lives. He goes on in verse 7. And be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Alan Stibbs makes this comment. Christians should keep themselves awake and alert with all their faculties, all their mental abilities, under control in order to be able to give themselves to praying. Praying is a very great ministry and responsibility that we have. We need to stay alert and pray for the needs of people that we know, for the needs of the church and the world. So by being sober-minded, being alert in prayer, we are being committed to the will of God. And he goes on in verse 8 and says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Now, Mr. Cranfield, in his commentary on this phrase, says this. The word earnestly, keep loving one another earnestly, doesn't refer to warmth of emotion, but to the taut, that means the tight muscle of strenuous and sustained effort as of an athlete. In other words, it's a kind of love that has perseverance and commitment. Of course, there can be warmth there too. So, earnest love for one another demonstrates radical commitment to the will of God. One thing that always amazes me, the love these apostles had for the people of God. Paul and Peter. Notice the importance of this virtue of love. He says love is above all other virtues. It's above self-control and sober-mindedness. Not that these two virtues are not important. They are, and we should strive for them, but love is a supreme Christian virtue. How are we to love one another? He says, earnestly. Now, other English translations say, love each other deeply. NIV. Have fervent love among yourselves, is New King James. Or the Christian Standard Bible says, maintain constant love for one another. So, all these different angles point to the same thing. Earnest love, fervent love, constant love we're to have for one another. Paul, writing Colossians, Colossians 3, verse 14, says, after he lists all these Christian virtues there, he says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So Christian love was another common theme in Peter's ministry. He said earlier in his letter, 1 Peter 3, 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And he goes on here and says, Since love covers a multitude of sins.
How does love cover a multitude of sins? Well, <clears throat> Proverbs 10.12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So, again, I want to quote from Alan Stibbs. He says, Love is ready to forgive again and again. It finds a way to shelter the wrongdoer from exposure and condemnation. You remember when uh, Joseph discovered that his, the woman he was to be married to, Mary, was pregnant? Of course, he was devastated. But it says he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, so he decided to divorce her quietly. That was an act of love on his part. Now, another interpretation of this uh, phrase, love covers a multitude of sins, that some have offered is that it's referring to Jesus himself. He loved his people by going to the cross and dying for their sins, and thus he covered, he removed a multitude of sins. Now Peter goes on. He lists a few specific ways that we can demonstrate love to the brothers and sisters. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. There's another way we love one another earnestly, and show our radical commitment to the will of God. Now, notice Peter's awareness of human nature. Showing hospitality to others can be inconvenient and extra work, but we should exercise this ministry when the Lord sends someone our way. I can remember times, I can remember times in the past when people have showed me hospitality and what a blessing that is just to remember those times. They invited me into their home, gave me food to eat, a place to sleep. You know, in Peter's day, there weren't so many motels like we have today or many inns, so it was important for Christians to be hospitable to traveling uh, brothers and sisters so that they wouldn't have to sleep under a tree. Now he goes on in verse 10 and says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Notice that Peter says here, Every Christian has received a gift by which we can serve our brothers and sisters in the church. This is another manifestation of how love works in our lives and in our fellowship. <clears throat> Basically, Peter is presenting two uh, basic categories of service. Either speaking, that is ministering the word of God, or serving in other capacities. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. What does that mean, the oracles of God? Well, it refers primarily to the scriptures, the word of God. <coughs> Romans 3.2 3, says, The advantages of the Jews were much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Old Testament revelation was given to them to no other people on earth. And then Hebrews 5.12 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God, the revelation of God, the word of God. 
So, in the church, whoever speaks the oracles of God, the word of God, needs to do that in the strength that God supplies. So those who teach and preach the word of God must do that with the utmost care and reverence as well as diligence and study and preparation. For this is the primary means by which God equips his people for their own ministry. Well, speaking gifts are serving gifts. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. What are some other kinds of service in a local church? Well, we have people that cook here, help clean up. In the uh, New Testament church, they were feeding the, uh, the widows, the apostles were, and it was taking up a lot of their time every day. So they appointed, they, uh, they asked for the church to bring forth some men to be deacons to wait on the table so that the apostles could be free to engage in the ministry of prayer and the word of God. Well, whether it's speaking, ministering the word of God by teaching it, or serving, there's one goal in all of this. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Amen. We shouldn't be seeking our own glory. The glory of God through Jesus Christ and the good of the church. This is the way, one of the ways we reveal a radical commitment to the will of God in our lives. It says to him, the final sentence here says, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Is that referring to God the Father or Jesus the Son? Probably from the context it's referring to Jesus the Son. Although whenever the Son receives glory, the Father does also as the Trinity works together and complements one another. As we work and serve in the church as a team, we bring glory to God. In humility, we should seek to serve one another in love. So there are two main ideas in our passage today. That Christ's suffering calls us to a radical break with sin. And secondly, Christ's coming, the end of all things, calls us to a radical commitment to doing the will of God. Amen. Now, Hebrews chapter 12 sums this up for us. I want to read this, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fix our eyes on the finish and run for it. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. <coughs> The Lord Jesus Christ has done all for us in going to the cross and bearing our sins. Therefore, 
let's get radical with the sin that remains in our lives. Let's throw it out, despise it, and in its place give ourselves wholly to the will of God to use us as he will in his service and for his glory on the earth. This is how we should live in view of the coming end of all things on earth and the coming back of the Lord Jesus Christ to receive us unto himself. Let's pray. Thank you, our Father, for the revelation of your word today. That it's clear what we need to do. Because Jesus has died for us. We need to throw away all our sin, human passions, and live for your will and for your glory. It's not always easy to do, Lord. We need your help and grace to do this. And we have failed sometimes. Forgive us and strengthen us in our holy resolve to pursue hard your will, to throw away sin and live for your glory. Help us, O oh God, to be your faithful servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.